Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, there's a medley of the work of DJ Steve James of Radio 3, who's just won a prestigious Asia-wide broadcasting award. So to celebrate, there's a few bits and bobs from his weekday Steve James afternoon drive. But first, photographer Keith McGregor has always loved Hong Kong's neon signs, which is a plus for us, because as these iconic images of Hong Kong have disappeared in recent years, Keith has them captured in beautiful photos dating back to the 1970s. His family goes back to the 1860s in this region, though Keith McGregor is the only one who's branched out into photography. His exhibition, Keith McGregor, The Way We Were, shows nostalgic street scenes, traditional junks shot from a helicopter, there's colonial and local culture, and city panoramas. The exhibition also showcases Keith's neon fantasies, where he's taken a modern photograph and then spent tens of hours building neon signs onto it, a reverse reality where the city is still illuminated by multiple neon signs. Keith McGregor, The Way We Were, is on show until November the 18th at Usagi Gallery in Shinghin Street, next to Gough Street in Central. The show is organised and curated by Blue Lotus Gallery. Yeah, I'm Keith McGregor. I left Hong Kong in 1992 after a wonderful career in photography and also owning banyan tree shops. Um, went back to live in England mainly because of my children, growing teenagers, and I come to Hong Kong probably between two or three times a year for the last 26 years. Yeah, and I'm here for my new exhibition, first ever solo exhibition since 1974. So it's very exciting to be back. Yes, I mean, when you look at your photos, they're largely from the 70s and 80s. It creates a real nostalgic feel of Hong Kong, both the Chinese and colonial elements and, and just uh, the sense of the, the old buses, a lot of neon. Yes, well, I was mad about neon, but I took it too much for granted, for like we all did in the 70s and 80s. It was just there, and we thought that was just Hong Kong, and I never really looked at it very carefully until 2001. When I um, started, uh, I had a lunch with a great friend and uh, we started talking about our interest in neon and then we produced this book and that was in 2002. I'm very, very glad that I recorded all these thousands of neon signs because most of them are now gone. Or being in fact, they're being torn down as we speak and the government has got a program to basically get rid of them all, which is a great sadness to me. I think it's like tearing the soul out of Hong Kong certainly taking away its, its sort of uh, character. Now, a lot of your photographs are full of colour. Also, you went out often in a helicopter, so we've got some uh, incredible photographs looking down on old working junks where you can really see in detail on deck what's, what's going on and, of course, these huge, magnificent sails. So when did you first pick up a camera? Funnily enough, I, when I was at Oxford, I, I did a project for a scholarship. I chose as a subject the resettlement of refugees in Hong Kong. I did a whole lot of photographs of tenement estates and resettlement estates, and uh, that sort of showed me the other side of my very lucky colonial upbringing in Hong Kong, which was rather luxurious and full of you know, games of cricket and going to the swimming pool and on boats. And to see the actual real side of Hong Kong, the people who were coming as refugees and their housing problems was, was a big eye-opener for me. And it brought me much more in contact with the Chinese side of Hong Kong. That was not a very good camera I had in those days, but my mum gave me a, a Pentax camera for my 21st birthday. And I took a trip on a bus from Battersea Power Station to Kathmandu 
with about 15 rolls of film, so I was extremely parsimonious with my photography. And the bus broke down about five times before we even got to Iran, so it was a bit of a disaster. We were about three weeks late getting to India. And so it was one bus? It was one bus, which should never have been allowed on the roads, let alone in England, let alone to try and get to Kathmandu with. It was a two-stroke engine, comma, diesel. And it's like driving a lawnmower around the world. With a two-stroke engine, you don't have any brakes in the, in, in the, in the gearing. So if you're going down mountain passes uh, at sort of 10,000 <laughs> feet down into sort of the, the valley of Erzurum in, to- in Turkey, it's a pretty scary experience because then, then you're knowing the brakes have broken down already three times. It was an interesting trip, and I certainly got the bug for photography then. I can't say my pictures were of any great merit, but I thought they were terrific. So <laughs> and and what I, year was that? This was 1967, just after I left Oxford, and... Uh, I got very, very ill. Unfortunately, I picked up amoebic hepatitis in Pakistan. And I got to Singapore in a very bad state and was flown straight to hospital in, in Hong Kong before I went. And then I spent six months recovering. And then I went to New York to do a business uh, management course with a view to going to Harvard Business School. But that didn't happen because suddenly my father died in 1969 and I had to fly back immediately. Uh, unfortunately, I arrived only about five hours after he died, so I was very upset not to be on time to be with him. But uh, he was only 53, and it was a great, great tragedy for us, and my mother was just devastated. So I spent six months literally going through the family affairs, and after six months, my mum said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to be a photographer. And my mother nearly dropped down dead and couldn't (laughs) believe that I was going to do that. So she very sweetly gave me a Hasselblad for my Christmas present, actually. And I went to Angkor Wat with her. I went with my mum as a kind of way to try and get over the grief that we were both experiencing. And it was not a pleasant thing in Hong Kong. And to go somewhere like Angkor, totally out of one's comfort zone and do something completely different was wonderful. And there I met, quite by accident, I think he was staying in the same hotel as us, a delightful older photographer called Bella Kalman, who was Hungarian, Jewish, but living in Boston, Massachusetts. And he had trays full of boxes full of Hasselblads. And he and I walked around together and this wonderful place. And he lent me his lenses. He taught me a lot of things, which I had no idea about. And when I came back, I said, that's it, Mum, I'm definitely going to, to be a photographer and I'm going to try my best to make it work. You are, were already a well-travelled child. You, you were born in Kenya. No, I was born in Bangalore, India, because my father was in Shanghai when war was declared on Germany in 1939 and he had to... He said, I'm not staying in Shanghai where all my school friends and everybody are joining the army. And the closest place to join the army in, from Shanghai was Calcutta. So he jumped on a ship to Calcutta, and my mother, who he'd just asked to marry him, only 18 years old, or 18, just 19, said after a few weeks, I don't want to stay in Shanghai. Uh, I'm going to join my husband, in, well, my husband to be in Cal- Calcutta. And my grandparents were living in Hong Kong on 457 The Peak, and they decided to come to the wedding. And thank God they all did, because, well, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that, because Shanghai and Hong Kong fell to the Japanese within a few weeks, so they couldn't go back. All the rest of our family was all incarcerated in prisoner war camps in Shanghai. My grandmother, my aunt Mary Lou, who's now 101, so obviously didn't do her any harm. And uh, my uncles and a cousin were all in Shamshipo and, and uh, Stanley prisoner war camp. 
So after the war, I was born in Bangalore, 1946. We came back on a troop ship in my mother's arms at the age of six months, and uh, I was, I think it must have been about a year, when the family firm, which had been devastated during the war, of course, decided that Dad ought to go to Kuala Lumpur to sort out the business there and also Singapore. So I went to Kuala Lumpur for two years. My sister was born there. Then after that, we decided to open a business in Kenya. It's an interesting choice, but my, uh, my mother's mother, uh, who'd been in Japanese prisoner war camp in Shanghai, had a brother, a twin brother, who was made head of the dam in Kiambu in Kenya. So they wanted to be near her, and they thought, good idea to open a business in Kenya, where they thought the colonial empire would last a lot longer than it did here. It was a mistake, business-wise, but we had 10 wonderful years in Kenya, a fantastic place to be brought up. And uh, 1959, we came back to Hong Kong, and I was already at school in England. You go back several generations in Hong Kong. Well, four, four. Well, my great-grandfather came to Shanghai in 1858, on a ship belonging to, to the... It was, I think he was a merchant seaman, that's right. Previously that, he'd been a British Navy. He was a Scottish crofter's son, you know, and, of course, the second son of a Scottish farming family does not get a chance to inherit anything. So that's why all the Scots disappeared into every single part of the world, Argentina, America, China, India. And he was one of those. And so he got on a, a merchant Navy ship. He came to China twice... In 1864, he and a chap he'd met in Singapore bought a company called John Smith and Sons, or Henry, I forget, John Smith or Henry, I can't remember now, and they formed their own wine and spirits importing business, chiefly importing whiskey from Scotland, which is where he came from. And that was 1864, the same year as the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank was formed. And they had the most amazing life in Shanghai, did extremely well, they opened offices in eight different parts of China. Hong Kong office started in 1888, around about then. KL, Singapore, Penang, they were agencies in Thailand and Philippines. And so they built up this business. Great-grandfather retired to an estate in Maidstone, um, outside Maidstone in Kent. And Grandpa took over the business with his brother Norman, and they stayed in Shanghai. And then eventually came back to live in Hong Kong in the 30s. And there he met Granny, Auntie Dot, as she was known across Asia, she was the daughter of Augustus Shelton Hooper, who was the very first managing director of Hong Kong land under Sir Paul Chater. And uh, he was also involved in communal works as well. He was quite a well-known figure in Hong Kong society. And my grandmother fell in love with my extremely handsome grandfather, Jack, and they got married in St. John's Cathedral, uh, where I was married, actually, in 71. So it's tradition been was kept up. Now, what was Auntie Dot's full name? Dorothy Shelton Hooper, her maiden name. So you pick up your Hasselblad in what year? 1970. You start off as a child portrait photographer, yes. so going to weddings. two families, weddings which you like less. Yeah. But what we're looking at here in the gallery today is real street photography. The reason I did photographs of Hong Kong, especially in the streets, and because I was trying to get material for the calendars, and that was only what I could do. I, had, I didn't have enough time, actually, because I had to make a living. And uh, so I had to do photography as well, of, of commercial stuff. So I only did my street photography and new territories and land tower when I could find the time. I wish and wish now that I'd taken even more, especially down in Western District, which I'm sadly um, bereft of. There are not enough pictures down there. That was one of the most attractive parts of Hong Kong. Well, helicopter photography was very difficult in those days. I mean, digital now is easy. You can just shoot 
3,000 pictures in half an hour without thinking about it. When you had to change, you had Hasselbaz with 12 pictures on a roll and you'd have to change film sort of 40 times in the hour and an hour's helicopter cost was enormously high. It was very disciplined work and, and nerve-wracking. I was hanging out of an open door most of the time. I never had the wind. I always had the doors off. And hanging over the front of fast container ships going at about 24 knots was an exciting performance, keeping the helicopter right off the bows. Yeah, we used to wait in Lama Island on the top of the hill up there and, and, and wait till the captain of the ship had radioed through to say he was coming into the Lama Channel. You'd fly off a helicopter pad off Lama? Yeah, well, we'd wait at Lama for them. And uh, as soon as we saw the ship coming, we'd go off. And luckily, quite often, there'd be sort of junks, not ever more than one or two at a time, sadly. because There were occasions earlier on in the 70s when you could see 10 to 12 of them. I've actually got some pictures off Castle Peak, which are in the, in the show today, which were taken where I think there's 12 in one photograph. But when I was in a helicopter, I never saw more than one at a time, which always interested me that people would be solo sailing those not very easy-to-sail craft from Amoy down to Canton, but not, and never in a, in a convoy, never in a fleet. It was always single. I think once I saw two, but that was it. Now, tell me about Neon Fantasy. Yes, that started in 2001, and I was doing this book, and I saw, I, I got all these individual signs, we're going around in a car everywhere. We had, I had a car, we went all over every single part of the territory, Yun Long, Aberdeen, everywhere we could. It's always quite tricky when you're driving a car, jumping out in the middle of a street with a tripod and, not, and trying to avoid being had up by the police. But as I was doing the book, I did a kind of frontispiece, actually inside the cover, of all individual signs as a kind of collage. And then I thought, why don't I start putting them onto real streets and create a kind of fantasy of what I would love Hong Kong still to look like? And it sort of evolved from there. We did one for the book and... I never thought about selling them as prints, but somebody rang up and said, I love that. Can you make it into a print? I think it's very interesting. I mean, I see a lot of coffee table books that are of photography that is done in 19th century, earlier 20th century. But what you've really captured here, because of the time that you've been in Hong Kong, is the 70s and 80s. You've got red buses uh, coming down streets that we wouldn't see now or street scenes, markets, um, and as you say, the signage. And, and what I like is you don't polish it up in the sense that if there's litter on a, on a canopy, it stays there. Yeah, well, within reason. If there's, <laughs> if there's a lot of litter in, for instance, Aberdeen Harbour in a, in a, in a sampan scene, I mean, really disgusting litter, I'll try to sort of <laughs> clean a bit of it up. But yes, if there's litter on top of a sort of underneath an air conditioning unit in a street scene, there's no point in clearing it up. It's part of the Hong Kong scene, isn't it? One of the things I regret not doing is covering the colonial side of Hong Kong. I don't have any photographs of the governor, of ceremonies, of, you know, of all the sort of... The, I've got a few judges and things like that, but I haven't... I was much more interested in the Chinese side of Hong Kong, the, the real life going on around us. So I've basically zero stuff on the actual British in Hong Kong seen at all. I mean, I didn't photograph any of the sort of grand ceremonies. I, I was not really a photo reporter. I was more of a photographer looking for beautiful things to go in calendars on postcards. I regret that now, but I couldn't do everything. 
No, and certainly I think a lot of people who come in who are looking at your photographs will be reliving some aspects of life here 40 or 30 years ago. Tell me about the red buses, for example. Well, I didn't think anything of them. They were just there. I mean, I suppose it's my Chinese clients who've told me that those are the buses they loved and missed the most. It's a bit like in England with with the wonderful buses in London, which... Now, one or two are beginning to come back where you could sort of stop off and there was that handle you could swing around to and there was a bus conductor at the end with his thing. And those buses, we miss in England a lot. I think those buses were iconic of Hong Kong and uh, I think they disappeared at the end of the 80s. So if people would like to come and see your photographs here in Hong Kong, uh, the exhibition is open until the the 18th. 18th. But I will still be represented forever, hopefully, by Sarah Green at her lovely Blue Lotus Gallery, which she's just signed the lease of a, a wonderful space just further up the road from here, just above Manmo Temple. So I'll always be accessible through Sarah and through her website. You also have an enormous uh, online collection. Yes, I do. My website is, is terrible. I've got to redo <laughs> it. I did it in a hurry for 2017 all by myself, and I'm going to employ a professional website designer to, to make it uh, much slicker than it really is. <laughs> no, I'm not very good at those sort of things. Well, your, your photography is pretty good. Well, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> I've totally self-taught, you know. I've never, I never read a manual. I was inspired, though, by certain people. I mean... Joseph Karsh in the portrait side. Oh, God, what a wonderful photographer he was, the Canadian guy. And then there was, obviously, I was, went back to Edward Weston and all, and, and of course, for landscapes, Ansel Adams is my, one of my heroes. But my biggest hero of all time, as far as Asia is concerned, is without doubt John Thompson. John Thompson in the 1860s and 70s dragged around tents full of chemicals, collodion plates, glass plates, huge great plate cameras, and photographed all over China and Siam, as it was called then. And if you ever can get a hold of his books, he was just amazing. Um, admittedly, he did have a few assistants, but still, he, he, when you think, we complain and moan about the heat here, wandering around with a digital camera, we go click, 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 and can leave in five minutes. What he did is just mind-blowing. He was, he's my, probably my biggest fear. But the person who really inspired me to get into photography was our next-door neighbour in Headland Road, was Larry Barrett. Headland Road? Yeah, we lived in Headland Road in, in Repulse Bay from 1960 to when my father died. My, actually, my mother stayed on for a bit. And then I lived there again when we, just before we left Hong Kong. But he was called Larry Burroughs and was one of the greatest time-life photographers He's the one who did all those extraordinary, iconic pictures which you'd recognise of the Vietnam War. And he was tragically killed in a helicopter crash in Cambodia. He wasn't on assignment. He just went there out of curiosity and that helicopter was shot down. And that was the saddest thing. But he was an inspiration, along with Bella Kalman in, 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 and then John Thompson, of course, is a later hero of mine. And remind me, Bella Kalman? Bella Kalman was a Hungarian Jewish photographer who got out of Germany and had a hungry and just before the war and set up uh, in in Massachusetts in Boston and he was the one I met in Angkor Wat and we remained friends for oh till he died sadly two years ago now where's your aunt who's 101 she's living in Gerard's Cross she she was in Japanese prison war camp Mary Lou Leckie her husband used to be the number two of the Union Insurance Society of Canton he was a well-known cricketer mad keen golfer and looked a bit like Cary Grant. He's died, but she's been living on her own. She's in her own house. 
She still plays bridge once a week, goes to the golf club for lunch at least once or twice a week. She remembers almost everything, and she's 101, and she's my absolute wonder woman. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. It might not be a suitable comment to make, because I I think, um, you know, when you think of the levels of hardship that would have been present, say, even in the early 1970s and on, but do you think that Hong Kong was prettier? Yeah, I think because a lot of the old colonial buildings were very important for Hong Kong, and uh, they were low-rise, and they had, they had a kind of style to them, which in most cases they've been replaced by hideously ugly architecture. I can't think of many buildings. I, th- I think it's sad, other than I think the Lippo Centre was a very interesting building. I love the Bank of China. Unlike some people, I actually like the ICC, but uh, there aren't many buildings in Hong Kong, which I can think of added to Hong Kong's architectural heritage in the way that the old colonial buildings were. And it's a pretty, obviously you can't, in such a limited space, keep those low-rise buildings, but I wish they could have rebuilt them somewhere on the prior to recreate the old look. I mean, Singapore, just in time, saved all their old shop houses. And what a bonus that's been to Singapore. I think it's sad. I don't think Hong Kong is uglier. I think it's because of more people, obviously. You can still go to the most amazing places in the new territories where you've got, and Sai Kung, where you've still got the country park. I think the harbour was prettier because it was wider. Where we are in the gallery is adjacent to Gough Street. And in fact, it was interesting just now, as we were walking up, you looked down and you said, well, that you had a photograph that actually was the same view. Yes, taken from the top of the steps looking down. In 1978 or 9, we're not totally sure what date it is because sometimes it's impossible to date them. But it's absolutely extraordinary that I'm showing, after all these years, have a solo exhibition in the one street where I have a photograph, which is one of the most successful pictures we ever sold in my last gallery. It's lovely. I mean, just looking down. So this is Gough Street. Yeah, I've actually got three versions of it. And it's, it's looking down onto a, a shop down. tenement house, yeah. isn't it? I still prefer the closer-up one because there's, you can see more detail. But, I mean, actually, you can see it's the same, but there's some wonderful... There's, in the, in the closer-up one, there's a wonderful little boy with his head pointing around the corner. There's so <laughs> many little details. There's a guy holding two bowls of food, congee or noodles or something, taking them off to his off, office for, for lunch. And there's another guy with a bald head who looks at his steps straight out of 19th century China, holding his little granddaughter, probably, in his arms. I just couldn't believe it. when, when I, I didn't even know where, where Usagi was until I arrived yesterday from London. And to come back and see that it's actually in the same street, one of my favourite photographs, is, is a, bit, a bit portentous, I think. But extraordinary. When you've got film in those days, if you had highlights and, and, and shadows, and you were not shooting on a tripod where you can actually do double exposures or two exposures of the same shot. If you were walking around, you had to make compensation for shadow detail, and it's digitally so much easier because you can just open up shadows which you could never see in film. So a lot of the film has to be very, very carefully printed in order to try and get as much shadow detail as possible. So you mean what, detail where there is shadow? Well, yeah, for instance, around here, in digital, this would be... Even, even there was shadow, you could open that completely up. So you see every single detail as though it was brightly lit. So you have to be very careful with, with scanning old films and, and some effect. The one of Gough Street was extraordinary because I was going through all my photographs and I saw this transparency. I was about to throw it in the bin because it looked so brown and covered in sort of dirt and faded. 
I thought I couldn't get anything out of it, so I scanned it. And suddenly, after about ten hours of working on it, getting back all the old colours, it's come to life again. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. It was completely sort of... I mean, I, I should have brought it out, as I said, and, and showed people just how you can always find something, even from old negatives and old transparencies, and, and rescue them. So don't chuck your old negatives away. My thanks to photographer Keith McGregor talking there on his exhibition Keith McGregor, The Way We Were, which is on show until November the 18th at Usagi Gallery in Shinhing Street, next to Gough Street. RTHK Radio 3 presenter Steve James has been declared top on-air personality in the main Asia-wide broadcasting awards, the Abu Prizes. Steve's been hailed as number one for his weekday afternoon show by the Asia-Pacific Broadcasting Union. Steve's been with Radio 3 for the past 16 years. So to finish up this week, here's a medley, a potpourri of some of the sounds of Steve, as heard on his weekday, the Steve James Afternoon Drive. Let's begin the programme. The Steve James Wednesday Afternoon Drive. Let the dancing begin! On Radio 3. We hope you listen on a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, and Saturday has flair. And if you listen on a Sunday, a fun day, the one day that I'm not on the air. But, but there's non-stop entertainment, I'm surrounded by toys, all the mini playstations, the Game Boys. People scream and shout on their telephones. <laughs> And the bloke in front, he loves to cough and sneeze I think there's a child nibbling at my knees And an umbrella shoved where it should not go Cause I'm squeezing on a packed train I'm not sure when I'll get home again Every single time I hear that tune, whichever version, it's an old 60s uh, song, revamped by the beautiful South, and it just lifts my heart. Isn't it just the most beautiful song? Everybody now. This will be our year. Took a long time to Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. That has made my day. I'm, I'm back. I, was, I wasn't sure where I was going mood-wise a little while ago. I'm back on track now. That just cures everything. You must have a song that you can turn to, a piece of music that you can turn to, that just makes everything right again. If you're sort of going off track a little bit or your day's gone a bit down, you're feeling a bit... Uh, and you just turn to... I can turn to that song and... Zen. It's, be, it's better than Enya. The band The Tremolos. Do you remember The Tremolos? They played Hong Kong. Actually, they played Hong Kong, uh, I don't know how many times, but they played Hong Kong. Um, and you'll hear uh, Uncle Ray playing uh, uh, Tremolo's uh, uh, tunes. Brilliant. Um, they were at number one on the UK singles chart this very day, 1967, with their version of a Four Seasons song. It was the B-side to Rag Doll, and it was the Tremolo's only UK number one. There we go.
Rose, 1967, side... Ah, oh, that is a tune! God, 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 sorry. Popular and available anywhere. Steve James. Maybe that would cheer you up. Tonight I'm going out with a Fox News correspondent. Stay tuned for this and more. It is 5.45. Getting ready for the 5.45 Club. RTHK Radio 3. Uh, and, and what's your friend's name? Steve James. <laughs> oh, 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 God. No, no, seriously, what's his name? You're listening to James, Steve James. Radio 3 DJ Steve James there, who's been awarded the top on-air personality prize by the Asia-Pacific Broadcasting Union. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.